Hey everybody, welcome to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. I have the great privilege in my life to be invited into the boardrooms and basements of the world's greatest CEOs. And what I help people do is get ready for what's next. What's next in your life, your career, your company? How to build that bench for the succession plan, to build an organization that can change the world. And so I was on one of those adventures in Southern California in a rental car, half lost on one sizzling hot morning in a car that didn't have AC that worked. And I was on Sunset Boulevard when I got a call back from a music producer, one of the most epic executives in that business of all time. And I'd never expected to even hear back from him. And he said, if I could be at his house, not his office, at his house in the next few minutes, he'd have a half hour. So I scrambled across town, which is not an easy thing to do in LA. And I met with what is probably the most Grammy nominated artist and producer in history of all time, with about 80 nominations and more than two dozen Grammys. He's got three dozen major movie scores to his credit. And one of the few folks that you'll ever meet who's got Grammys, Oscars, Emmys, and even the Grammy living legend sitting on his shelf in his Bel Air home where I met with him. I, I think he's truly one of the great entrepreneurs, business executives, and most important, humanitarians in his industry of all time. He's Quincy Jones, and he goes by Q, as he quickly reminded me every time I slipped into calling him Quincy or Mr. Jones, or even worse yet, sir. He invited me there because he wanted to share with me his role of being a producer, artist, and composer, but what he wanted us to hear and feel most in this episode is truly what I'd describe as his gift for engaging creative larger-than-life talent to team up for global impact. In other words, as a leader, the job you have is to recruit and develop and promote other leaders. In fact, many of those are more talented, more expert than any of us as a CEO. And I can't think of a more difficult place to deal with those what could be considered prima donnas who you really need in your business and your organization than Hollywood. I mean, how, how difficult is that to get people to team up and unleash their best of best performance? Against all odds, Q grew up under the worst circumstances and not only survives, but thrives and transforms what it means to be collaborative at scale in an organization and across an industry. Producing one of the best selling singles of all time, We Are the World, and Michael Jackson's Thriller, one of the best selling albums in history. Join me for this chat with the air conditioning pitched to its highest level. In this hot, sweaty room, we hear Quincy, oops, it's Q, tell me about how, frankly, he was able to pull together the most remarkable creative teams in history. Here's Q. I don't care whether it is leadership, you know, integrity. When I see that, that, that pain and stuff, I know what it feels like. You know, I've been in, in Louisville. Uh, when my, I lived with my grandmother in the summertime, I used to kid people would say, my daddy used to drop us off at my grandmother's villa. <laughs> Please, there was a shotgun shack in, in Kentucky. And she uh, was coal black. You know, she was from, she was a slave, ex-slave. And my brother and I used to go down there. And she had no, we had coal oil, no electricity. And, and uh, she had uh, the kerosene coal oil lamps and coal stoves and She'd send us down to the river to get rats. You know, she'd peel the rats and strip them down and cook them with onions and, and get uh, water out of the, the backyard well, uh, take the greens and stuff. Man, please, you know, seven years old, you don't care, you know. 
they taste good. Not, not only that, that's all it was to eat, you know. Yeah. It was in the, the Depression, you know, the rough part of the Depression in a very poor, poor, poor town, poor place. And yeah. so I know what they feel, man. You've been there. Oh, please. I know exactly what they feel. And uh, what happens to your mind to try to keep your mind together, you know, to hold it so you can be uplifted and not beaten down and, and, and uh, the spirit knocked out of you. Try to make yourself a, a better person and have some kind of interesting skill that you can teach to one other young person to keep him so he doesn't try to destroy his life. Just one person. Don't get into trying to do a whole lot of stuff. Just one person. Number one, start with yourself, you know. Like they said, the best thing to do for poverty is not, a poor, poor people is not to become another one, you know. And try to, you know, to, to try to get your, your, your perspective on life together, man. It's, it's hard today. Fly me to the moon. And I met Frank in uh, 1958 in uh, Monaco for Think for Grace Kelly. He asked us to bring a band from Paris. And we spoke maybe four or five words, you know, the whole night. And never saw him again. And six years later, he calls up. Q, I just heard Basie's record. I'm in Hawaii. How'd you like to come over here and do this record with Basie? I said, oh, is the Pope a Catholic? <laughs> now, wasn't that your arrangement of Fly Me to the Moon? Yeah, yeah. Was now, That's the first record we did together. Wow. Now, I understand that that was also the first recording played on the moon. That's right. Buzz Aldrin told me that. He told me that, yeah. I saw him at a party in Sun Valley, and he said when they got out, they put that. he reached back and put that, that record on, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Frank was called. He was excited, and we put it in the show and in, in the sands, you know. But that's what amazes me is how, you know, the six degrees of separation works. When you're producing something and you're dealing with a big name, you're dealing with Michael Jackson, you're dealing with Frank Sinatra, how do you get those people to get their best work out of them? Well, you know, you cannot manipulate it. And that's what I've learned a long time ago. And I don't even try. I, I feel... I shouldn't work with anybody I don't love, admire, and respect. And if I do that, it'll pull my interest and pique my interest to the point of where I care enough about them. As, and because Nadia Boulanger told me a long time ago, when I studied with her in Paris, a person's music can never be any more or less than they are as a human being. And so the human contact, you know, if you have that, you know, well, we sure had it with Frank, you know, and then we, all the people I've worked with, except a couple. <laughs> and you know all of his history. God is bigger than life is, you know. But you also know, have to understand the reality that he is basically, no matter how bigger than life he is, he's a big band singer. He came up when the, the Tommy Darcy and Artie Shaw and Basie and Duke were the Rolling Stones, you know. These turkeys would sit on the side with Joe Stafford and the Pied Piper, and sing the way they got tired playing. Ziggy Elman and Buddy Rich and everybody, then they'd get up and play, grab your coat and grab your hat, you know, sit back down. So they were not the stars at all, you know. And they learned, and they watched the greatest musicians in the world play. Those are the singers that have 50, 60, and 70-year careers. Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra, Billy Eckstein, Ella Fitzgerald. That's why, because they were in the incubator, they had an apprenticeship, very different from now. Kids, 15 years old, she's got to get out and look like she's been doing it 40 years, you know. It's unnatural. Because we never thought about fame or money ever. Because all of our heroes were too raggedy. You know, Charlie Parker was laying out in the gutter trying to get another fix, you know. And Basie and Duke and Miles. And so 
we didn't have that disease of it's all about the Benjamins, you know, just for money. Not at all. I made a bet with uh, with Brian uh, Epstein and Ringo. We went to lobby at a Mayfair Hotel that they would never happen in the States. Archie Blyer was there with the Everly Brothers. His daughter just married the Everly Brothers. And they were kidding. He says, God, we need to call them because that was Beatles' first influence, you know. Right. And he said, we were going to call the, the, them the four, the four Everly Brothers. You know, he said, that's what they wanted to call them. He said, do we like to call ourselves the two Beatles? And uh, we made a bet. They had gone to France, bombed. Right. They were big at the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany, and a few places around. But, man, it wasn't so obvious that they, they – I'll tell you why. They were already on EMI with just Sir Joseph Lockwood. They were signed to them exclusively in London. He couldn't give them away. Capital is, is their, their outlet here. The first record comes out on VJ, a black label. Did you know that? Yes. The first record comes out on VJ, and the, and the second one came out on Swan. It took the third single, the fourth single, I think, you know, for their own company to put them out. They, they didn't even want them, you know, because nobody had ever broken the barrier of the American dominance in pop music, you know. And, man, I'll never forget when uh, I got that call from Lennon uh, from the Warwick Hotel. And I got back home, and B. Mitch Reed on WMCA was, was after I got back home uh, from England. The Beatles are coming. I said, what is he talking about? The Beatles are coming on WC every day. He eventually became a jazz jockey. I said, this man is crazy. They had 50,000 people at the airport. <laughs> Girls around the block in New York. I could not believe it, man. And then they said, okay, the bet's off. Take me to the Apollo and I'll call the bet off. It was really <laughs> unbelievable. You know? Before we did Thriller, I did an album with Donna Summer. I had to do her album first. And on her album, I did a song called State of Independence because she's very... Religiously then, you know, it's like we couldn't do anything about bad girl and sex or anything then. So, so I did a song called State of Independence, a very beautiful piece of music. And in the middle, there's a beautiful climax of 16 bars for a choir. And I said to myself, why don't I just get the best singers I ever heard in my life? And I had, I had Michael Jackson, Stevie, Lionel, Dionne Warwick, uh, Criss Cross, James Ingram. I mean, Peggy Lipton, I was married to then, Don Kennedy, just the best things I could find. And that's why they called me to do this three years later. So they came in. Yeah, because they had to have somebody to stand there with these people, man. That's, a, that's not, you know, I know who I'm dealing with there, you know. I got a call from New York. Harry Belafonte had just called Ken Cragen and Lionel Rich and said, hey, man, Band-Aid and everybody else is getting on the case uh, and really being there for the African drought, you know, and what is our problem? And he was right, you know, because, I mean, that's my heart's been there all my life, you know. And it finally was determined that we'd do a record, and all of us got on the phone, you know. Number one, I said that we got, got to get a song first, you know. And so I got Michael and uh, Lionel to write the song, and we started to pull it together little by little, and we didn't know it was going to happen. Not at all. Getting, please, we had Dan Aykroyd in the choir, man. You know, we didn't know who was going to show up until we started to get Springsteen and Ray Charles and Stevie and, and, and Michael and was that caliber, and everybody wanted to come, you know. Springsteen drove up in his pickup truck, you know, and they were serious, you know. They, and the thing is, that whole thing about eagles at the door, they didn't need to be told that. I mean, that was in a letter. But these people were so real, you know, and they just wanted to do something collectively to really help. And, they, and that was the pure spirit of that night. You know, they stayed up, and Springsteen stayed around till 10 o'clock the next morning. I even did a solo with him at 10 in the morning, you know, and, and Stevie showing Bobby Dylan with this and that. That was just beautiful, man. 
And then, you know, a lot of people uh, throw rocks at it. So please, man, how can you throw rocks at something like that, you know? I think it has its part to do with your belief and your vision. You know, you, you have to try to see something before it happens. A lot of people attacked uh, all of us for well, when I worked with Steven Spielberg in Color Purple, you know, because if you looked at his track record, he wasn't a logical candidate to direct Color Purple, you know. Because he's, to me, he is the king of cinema. Not, I mean, not to me, the whole world he is. And uh, we were friends first, which is another good thing. So we were really close friends first. And we met each other and said, let's intern each other. He was doing uh, E.T. and I was doing Thriller. And he kept, took me by the studio, little little studio, little budget, $11 million film E.T. was. And smoke all over the place. He'd give his mask to go in. He said, come Q, come look at the camera, see what's, what's here. And I, he'd come over to my sessions and we'd talk about this. And I, he gave me a viewfinder and, a, and I gave him a synthesizer. It was a wonderful bond, you know. And it still is. It's like, it's like my brother. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg, it's her first film. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, her first film. Danny, almost, Danny Glover's almost first film. Margaret Avery. All three of them got nominations. That's when it feels good now. It was at the height of my career. We'd just done, you know, Thriller and Weird of the World and all this stuff. And that was the time to take the chance to go discover something new, you know. And so for two years, I didn't listen to radio in the process of Color Purple. When the, all that thing was really happening up there, that's when you go out and you do something else. And I think that's the way you grow. And you bump your head, and you do bump your head, and you scrape your elbows, and and you find out a lot of things. I was around some heavyweight people, and I got to learn a lot, you know, a lot, because we were on the set every day. You know, Alice was there, Menomaeus was there, the writer, and Stephen, we were in North Carolina, and Stephen was totally committed, you know. We we did three weeks of interiors uh, here while his son was born, Max. Two days after Max was born, we get on a plane and go to North Carolina with cottonmouth water moccasins and mosquitoes and 90 degrees. I mean, and he did the picture for scale. For scale. It's amazing. That's real, you know. That's right, man. The hottest director in Hollywood. And that was real. Let me ask you, you have been awarded just about every major award you can conceive of for performing. There's Grammys and Oscars and Emmys and more than I could possibly list. We go 200 years from now. The historians are looking back now. What would you like them to be saying about Quincy Jones? Hi, Q. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.